We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Podcast back, baby. Hello, Gator Nation. This is Alan Williams. I'm joined by my good friend, James DiVirgilio. We have finally returned from traversing the globe, and we're excited to bring you the Gator content you've been waiting for. James, how are you feeling right now? A little jet lagged, I would imagine. Yeah, I feel a little upside down, and so I want to give a disclaimer to everyone out there that if I say anything crazy on this podcast, just don't hold it against me. I got back from Israel late last night. I missed my connecting flight in Miami. I chose to rent a car and drive. Pros, when the job demands more of the supplies you use most, start with Lowe's. Because at Lowe's, we stock the right quantities you need for any size job. And at everyday savings, like up to 30% off drywall, drywall accessories, and insulation every day when you buy in bulk. Order at Lowe'sForPros.com and we'll have your order ready for pickup with dedicated pro loaders to get you loaded up and back to the job site faster. For your next job and the next, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Which resulted in me taking a nap at one of the Turnpike Visitor Centers or service plazas, whatever you call those, for an hour at 1 a.m. and then finally getting home at 4 a.m. So there's a seven hour time difference between Israel and here. And uh, we're recording this in the afternoon on Monday, Eastern Standard Time. So you you just never know what you're going to get from me today. But here I am. I'm looking forward to it. And I know, Alan, you've been to like maybe six or seven different countries, I think, in the past six weeks. So both of us have been gone, hence why this podcast has been gone longer than normal. Uh, but hey, here's the good news. We're back. And I don't know if any other podcast hosts live more fun international travel lives. Maybe that somehow helps us analyze Gator content, Alan. I don't know. Yeah, getting, you know, the updates from all around the world, you know, talking to people from every country, seeing what they think about the Gators, of course. And we got a good episode for you guys. We're going to dive into all the recruiting news, really just give you our thoughts, our impressions on what went down on National Signing Day and kind of put the whole thing in perspective as we like to do. And then we're going to go back through all the Gator news that's happened over the last few months, tell you whether it was a big deal or not, what we thought about it, and really hopefully get you all caught up headed into the off season. 
And Alan, before I ask you the first recruiting question, I want to take just a second to to thank our listeners yet again. This year was the year where we tested out um, the the pay model on Patreon, primarily on my own accord, not Alan's, really, to see if if uh, the interest for the show was there, if it was worth us volunteering our time to do it. Uh, we found out with a resounding answer that was a yes. And the show has really grown tremendously since we reopened it up uh, early on in the season. I think this year we reached almost 20,000 listeners towards the end, uh, which is which is double what we had last year at 10,000. So there are a lot of you out there listening. We greatly appreciate that. Every now and then I'll get my friends who will send me a text thread from Reddit or something else that mentions the show. It's really cool for Alan and I to hear that feedback and that comment. So we just love that you guys enjoy the content. And as always, keep the feedback coming. We definitely tailor the show to the topics that you want to hear and you want to hear us talk about. And the best way for us to continue to create content that you enjoy is uh, to be able to know what it is that you want us to chat about. And with that, we know that you want to talk about recruiting. And we want to talk about recruiting because that's that's the lifeblood of any program. Let's start in the zoomed out view with the big takeaways. Alan, are you encouraged by the results of National Signing Day? I am. And we'll get to the various reasons why, but... I thought overall it was a great result for the Gators. Um, if you look at the 24-7 composite, which kind of combines a lot of the rankings of the recruiting services, finished 14th, which I think is pretty solid, especially with the new wrinkle that this staff had to deal with coming in with an early signing period in December and battling some of our pro, some of our rival programs who were at their peak, like we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, so I thought that was a really good result. I think I'm encouraged at this point. It seems to be the consensus from those that really follow recruiting very closely that this was as good or almost as good of a job as any coach that would have taken this Florida job could have done. And we'll get into the statistics to back that up in just a moment. But that's a that's a big claim. It certainly seems to be an improvement over the McElwain era. And again, we'll look at the numbers that will tell us whether that's true or not here in a moment as well. But it is encouraging, although I think to me it didn't feel amazing because the National Signing Day, we missed on a couple of guys we really wanted. Uh, we flipped a guy from Alabama who we really wanted, so there were some wins and losses there. We proved some things. We learned some things. I think all in all, encouraging is the right word. Not bedazzled, but encouraged. We started this program off, this this new Dan Mullen era, Alan, talking about Dan Mullen's ability to recruit with the big boys, his ability to recruit these top athletes, and we wanted to see what his strategy would be heading into signing day. So this show, I think, is primarily different from other shows because we spend a lot of time talking about the strategy behind what's going on, not as much on the player focus. So if you find yourself as a new listener, this recruiting breakdown will not be as heavy on the individuals. It will instead focus more on what does this look like tactically and strategically? Are we set up in the right position to be able to compete? And we'll view it through that lens. One of the first things to look at in any recruiting class is not just its finish, which Alan, you just mentioned there was a top 15 class, but there's some context that needs to be done. How do we do against our rivals? How do we do against other schools in the same position? And first and foremost, did we fill the needs that we had on our roster? Because you could go out and sign a great recruiting class, but if you sign a bunch of guys where you already have depth, your team is not going to improve. Now, there's several positions we highlighted in our early signing day episode, Alan, 
linebacker, offensive lineman, corner, and D-line as our areas of need. How do you think this class addressed those needs? Decently well. I would say with cornerback probably being the biggest exception there. And linebacker and defensive line is kind of tough to figure out right now because we don't know where everyone's going to play. Um, do these guys that we signed, you know, some of these defensive linemen turn into outside linebackers in a 3-4? Or do some of these safeties turn into um, weak side linebackers? So a little bit tough to tell. Got some recruits there. O-line, I think, did a reasonable job at that spot. Um, and corner, really missed out, I think, on adding a big-time corner. There's a guy um, who ended up surprisingly committed to Notre Dame. But other than that, feels like they did a decent job filling the needs and, and hitting on the top priorities for where we're at roster-wise. We signed, as you mentioned, we wound up not signing a DB at all. We wound up signing four offensive linemen and then signed three linebackers, although only one true linebacker. But we spent quite a bit of time on the last episode talking about the conversion to the 3-4. And now our roster actually is well-suited to, to transfer some of our DNs to those three, four linebacker spots, which really are DNs for all practical purposes. So I think my thought on this is that we address this adequately. I'm not going to give this like a high plus grade, like, wow, we really smashed every possible gap on the roster. Uh, And I'm also not going to put it in the concern level, which we did on a couple of McElwain's classes. I think this was an adequate job. Some people would say it was a a, a solid job. The consensus seems to be that there isn't a concern right now, a significant concern that we left a large gap in recruiting. Uh, Corner, I think, like you mentioned, Alan, corner is probably the one that hurt the most. Now, we lost out on a signing day battle that would have, I think, really helped and then maybe left us in a scenario where we said, okay, uh, you know, D-line, we have lots of bodies, should be interesting. But corner might be the position you could point to in the depth chart and say, we're missing some guys there. On the flip side, though, Alan, on the offensive side of the ball, you could argue that the next year's football team, offensively, running back, receiver, uh, could be the strongest it's been maybe ever from a recruiting standpoint, if you go all the way down the roster, certainly not from a production standpoint. There's a lot to be said about the Urban Myers teams yeah. for that. But if you just look on paper, a case could be made that we have assembled more talent than we maybe have ever had. But certainly it's up there with talent we have had. I know that's probably the crowning achievement of of this Dan Mullen class in year one is he seems to have really flipped this to a far more athletic and skill-based recruiting strategy than what we saw under McElwain. Does that seem to be uh, what you've observed as well? Yeah, he went after some of the high-end guys, and we'll talk about a few of those big names, but really prioritized athleticism, size, speed. And, yeah, I mean, the running back ranks look really strong. Receiver, a lot of talent. And we'll get to some of these guys, you know, including some of these transfers. A lot of talent, a lot of potential. Like you said, not a lot of production, especially on the wide receiver side. So still, Florida, a lot of question marks at wide receiver, which is strange. Still feels like a little cognitive dissonance that UF should have question marks to wide receiver. But hopefully those question marks will turn into exclamation points as we move forward here. And I think one of Dan Mullen's priorities was bringing in top-tier talent. And so if you think about – recruits 
four and five star, three star and below, there's kind of a little dividing line. And if you want to consider four and five stars as blue chip players, and you know, you can kind of slice that any way you want, but those are vital to the success of a program. And so using that 24 seven composite, um, brought in a decent number of blue chip prospects more than I think even last year's class, which was McElwain's best class. How significant is that for you, James? It's extremely significant. You know, I said on the early signing episode that the only metric that matters to me is the top 100 and 300 players. I've said that each and every year on this podcast when we talk about recruiting and this year's class, a transition class from Dan Mullen is already the best class when you compare him to McIlwain. McIlwain never had a class that had as many uh, top 100 and 300 players together that this one had from Mullen. And that's great. That's what should be happening. This was the reason why we had a lot of concerns with McIlwain's recruiting all three years, even though it did progress, is that we just were not signing enough of these top 300 guys. Uh, now, you had mentioned Alan Preshow, an article uh, from Mr. Wonderlook, and you, you can read that uh, if you just go ahead and check him out on Dr. Google. You can check out his stuff there for 247. I think he's also on Gator Country. Is that where he is, Alan? Is he else there? Yes, there? I believe so. Yeah. So you can find a really good article breaking down what Alan just mentioned. And essentially, it looks at these percentages. And I think that uh, the percentage you're mentioning is like 52% of our, of our recruiting hall is blue chip, uh, which is the highest it's been since Meyer. Uh, I believe that's correct. And also high historically compared to other top recruiters that have had to transition teams. So if you look at it from that metric, this is a very strong job from Dan Mullen. He is, I don't want to say piggybacking, uh, but he is riding some of the recruiting momentum that McElwain had built up small, albeit small, uh, but he did a very, very solid job signing top level players. And in fact, I wanted to go through this breakdown I did a little top 100, 300 research, basically back of the napkin kind of stuff just to give you an idea. And if you look at the other classes to compare ourselves to, and I'm not going to go too deep into our rivals yet because that's coming up next, but if you look at schools that also transition, so let's take Florida State and Texas A&M, both of them later than us, and you look at who they signed, Florida State's got three top 50s and 11 top 300s. Uh, A&M had four top 100s and 12 top 300s. Here at Florida, we had five top 100s and 11 top 300s, and we signed less players than both A&M and Florida State. So any way you slice it, Florida had a very top-heavy, if you will, class, finally, uh, when it comes to the top 100, top 300. Now, we didn't have a lot of the guys in the top 25, top 30, top 40, top 50, but we significantly moved up uh, from where we've been, and that as, as all of you long-term listeners know, it's very important to me that shows strong progress and a commitment to understanding you have to have these guys to win. And while this, this recruiting effort's not going to be up there with the top five classes, when we look at Clemson and we look at uh, even Texas and, of course, Georgia, USC, uh, this is a good effort from Dan Mullen. And I think, as you're mentioning the blue tips, Alan, as we're talking about top 100, 300, uh, we can see that this is, this is significant progress from the previous regime. Uh, and of course, Will Muschamp had recruited at a level similar to this one. But I think the argument with Will Allen was that those rosters were not balanced. They weren't balanced efforts. And you have to do all of those things when you're looking at recruiting. So with that lens. And you mentioned. Yeah, go ahead. Hit me. Let me jump in here real quick. You mentioned even the number of players. And so if you're someone who follows closely 
like recruiting rankings, that's a huge part of the number. It's just an overall points metric often. And so if you sign 27, going to have a much higher finish in the rankings. So to be up at 14 or whatever with the number of players that we signed and it being a transition class, I think that has to be taken into context as well. If you look at our average star rating, we're into the top 10, maybe eight or nine, depending on how you look at it. So if you're someone who looks at that kind of stuff pretty closely, I think that really has to be taken into account. Yeah, that's a good tee up because what I was about to say next, and you just segued right into it, is take a look at Bama's class, which finished seventh. This is the worst Bama class by far that Nick Saban has had. They signed 19. We signed 19. And Bama had five top 100 and 13 top 300. If that sounds very much like our class, you would be right. It does. So the difference between number seven and us at number 14 is just that Alabama's aggregate players in their top 300 and their top 100 are higher than ours. I think in the top 100, there's some distinction between the guy ranked number five and the guy ranked number 90. Uh, but I think when you start talking about Allen, these guys ranked 130th versus 170th, meaningless, totally meaningless, which is why yeah. you want to bracket them anyway. So in reality, I think you can make an argument that the classes that are maybe 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, if you can scale them down for size, give them a per capita look and create this sort of blue chip index, you can create my top 100, 300 index, you can peel back and see what these what these programs really did. I think it paints the picture that Dan Mullen solidly put us into that second tier level. And there's one thing that I want to talk about before we break into the rivals, Alan. This was on purpose. You know, we signed 19 guys because Dan Mullen said, hey, you know, one thing I'm really proud of with this staff is that we didn't just bring in bodies. We didn't just say this is our first class. Let's fill the class. They were very tactical. They wanted to make sure they got players they thought could contribute to the program. And if they if they couldn't, they weren't going to sign them, and they were going after the best guys. This is a marked strategic change from the McElwain classes, which were, hey, if we can't get the biggest, best guys, let's just get guys. And what do you make of of that? Is that an encouraging note for you, Alan, to see a coach sticking to uh, a very tactical recruiting plan and roster building plan? I think so, and that, it shows that they have confidence in their ability to recruit next year's class, which should be much larger you know i've read some things about how the roster might break down i think they were a little conservative about kind of roster churn in terms of transfer um so we could sign as many as 24 25 maybe if it gets things go a little sideways on us or more people turn pro maybe that's a 26 27 because we can count four guys into a lot into this year's class if they enroll early so i think that's what they're looking for is we've got another year coming up and let's not restrict ourselves on next year's class by filling this year's class with back of the roster guys. And I mean, you can always take a flyer on somebody. Sometimes that works out like a Taven Bryan sometimes, or most of the time those guys never see the field and you're stuck with a guy on your team for four years taking up a scholarship. So I like that they had discipline not to do that when it would have, been beneficial, especially when they didn't know whether they were getting some of these um, suspended guys back. So I think that bodes well for the future if their confidence in themselves is accurate. And so far, essentially what we've learned is that this class is the best class we've had in, in four years. It was better than any of McElwain's classes. 
We've transitioned ourselves to some higher-end players. We've filled a large position of need with quarterback. We seemingly have a much more balanced roster for next year. Still admittedly, with a questionable offensive line, potential hole at D-line, uh, questions about linebacker, uh, and then questions about cornerback depth, especially beyond our starters. Now let's look at how we stack up against our rivals. I'm going to give you five rivals, Alan. And I'm going to say uh, one is outside the SEC and the others, well, two are outside the SEC, but one is uh, more obscure. But let's start off with with the big names. So let's start with with Nick Saban in Alabama. And let's start with Jim Harbaugh in Michigan, which is a comparison coach when we hired McElwain that we talked about. And then thirdly, let's look at Kirby Smart at Georgia. Let's look at those three guys and how do we stack up against them right now? Give me sort of your thoughts on on where we are uh, compared to maybe the, the biggest upstart coach in Kirby, the stalwart best coach ever in Nick Saban, and then Jim Harbaugh, who's a questionable and curious case on his own. Yeah, this will be interesting. I'm, I'm interested to hear your answers on this too. I mean, some people have deemed Alabama. They finished, you know, oh goodness, this guy is following seventh um, in the rankings. And I think that's just basically the fact that their team is really young and they don't have a lot of, immediate playing time and maybe they took a little step back with you know coaching change and kind of roster or coaching turnover uh so the fact that we're even in the same stratosphere as bama with they finished with the number one class in you know a billion years in a row feels kind of nice um harbaugh is interesting you know he's kind of the guy who's shaking up the recruiting world with these satellite camps and pulling stuff like you know having to sleep over at a recruits house and having a giant pep rally on signing day. And he was kind of quiet this year. I don't know what that means. And they finished 21st, I think, which is weird. I don't know what to make of that for them. Um, they have a lot of players coming back, but they did not show up strong on signing day. And I don't know, is Harbaugh getting bored? Are people kind of not feeling Michigan at the moment? But really, the monster there, Kirby Smart, I mean, that's unreal. I People talk about this maybe the best recruiting class ever. I think that's some of the function of they're riding the wave of being the hot program. There's a ton of talent in state in Georgia, and they're really the only program in Georgia. And so I guess the stars align for that. And, you know, good for them, I guess. Um, not good for us. But that's terrifying. How are you feeling about each of those three? Nick Saban, I have no concerns with. Uh, I think that that, that is uh, much ado about nothing. They have, like you mentioned, a super young roster. I think there's something to be said with the recruiting competition going on with some of these other schools. You have Tom Herman at Texas now, recruiting very well. You have Jimbo Fisher at AM now, which is going to start making it more difficult for Nick Saban. Uh, and of course, you have Dabo Sweeney at Clemson, not to mention other programs out there. But it's, it's just a little bit more difficult than it's been probably in recent memory for, for Nick. But I think this year uh, is not just discard it. It happened. It's unusual. I'm not going to panic yet if I'm an Alabama fan. I think there's there's merits for us to why it happened. However, maybe the worrisome thing is Nick Saban lost a couple of head-to-head battles, which he typically doesn't lose. He doesn't win them all, but he lost maybe more than he has in recent memory. I'm not sure if there's anything in particular to do with that. Maybe even these kids coming out of school are a little bored with Alabama. Maybe they want to beat Alabama. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It, it could be. It's very possible. But 
But Georgia, which we we quickly flipped that switch earlier this year. I mean, I talked about at length on the podcast, Alan, how Georgia was for real, what they were doing with these with these these young players, what they were doing with Jake Fromm, uh, the way they were recruiting was was going to stay. I was scared. I was terrified. I used every adjective I could to indicate how bad this was for us. And uh, it's only getting worse. The recruiting class they signed is just absolutely prolific. I think they have 13 top 100 players and 22 top 300 players, which is just insane. That 13 top 100 players is more than Florida's past five recruiting seasons combined in one year. Uh, it's it's absolutely manic right now with them. And then with Harbaugh, I would be really concerned, Alan. Harbaugh doesn't stay anywhere for a long time. We've talked about that before. This is a significant deviation from where he normally finishes with recruiting. Uh, Urban Meyer continues to rake in top three classes every single year. He's got James Franklin with a top five class this year. He's got more competition in that conference than he's ever had before. I would not be feeling great if I'm a Michigan fan. Now, he had a really young team last year, which we chronicled that. So that's kind of your same thoughts, Alan, with regards to playing time. But 21st? I mean, Snake Saban goes from first to seventh, and Harbaugh goes from you know top 10 to 21st. That's that's a question mark to me. I think you can make an argument that should never happen with a Jim Harbaugh-led team with the resources of Michigan. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I, I'm not someone who likes to jump up and down on the panic button, but there's something going on there. And maybe it's the fact that they haven't really succeeded on the field at the level that they wanted, you know, considering they were probably, you know, inches away from a playoff berth two years ago, but, and last year was a, a reasonable step back. So, you know, maybe they go out there and crushes this year and he finishes with a top three class next year. And we don't, we're kind of like, Oh, that was a weird aberration, but a little bit of noise in the system for Jim Harbaugh, who is, you know, lauded as the savior and people are fawning over him. And he's, you know, one of the more uh, luminous figures in college football. So I don't know. I, I wouldn't be panicking if I'm in Michigan, but I'd be a little concerned for sure. Yeah, it's hard to find precedent. It's, you can't find precedent. You've never seen Jimbo Fisher or Mark Richt or Nick Saban or, or those guys have a finish like that. So you have to start creating narratives for how that's okay. And that's generally not a good thing. Generally not a good thing. Let me give you two other rivals. One, Florida State with Willie Taggart. And two, Tennessee who had a very quick under-the-gun transition class. But regardless, let's take a look at those two. And what are your thoughts, us, compared to them with this recruiting class? You know, right there around where Florida State was at, and people gave them a lot of praise, read a lot of articles that had them kind of one of the winners of signing day, which, you know, I think basically because they had almost nobody signed uh, in the early signing period, and they kind of turned it around and finished with top 12-ish class. And so – that's probably a decent reflection for Willie Taggart about how he's a recruiter and that's his reputation. So we'll have to see if he can produce on the field. I thought he'd be able to recruit at least at that level at a place like Florida state and Tennessee. I don't know that they're kind of in a weird spot. Not a lot of time with a new staff. I, I'm not sure how their fans feel about where they finished. I think it was okay. Probably um, definitely weren't, you know, lighting it up or anything like that. No, which is good. So I'll start with Tennessee. Tennessee, we we obliterated in terms of top 100 and top 300 players in a direct comparison. That bodes well for us. That's good, which is why the fear of Georgia is also on the other side. They obliterated us, right? So we're sort of in this feeding chain. 
And then Florida State's class is really interesting. You know, the consensus seems to be they signed an unbalanced class. It's DB heavy. Uh, and, and it's it's maybe more numbers oriented than like overall fits their needs, builds their team situation. There's also a narrative out there that Willie signed several guys from the West Coast he already had ties to. He signed kids that were lifelong Florida State fans. And those could also just be excuses uh, because uh, people want to, you know, hate on Florida State for whatever reason they want to hate on them for, which is fine by me. But he did a very nice job moving in from 64th to, you know, 11th or 12th, a similar class to ours in profile. I think if you ask the question, and my buddy Tyler, who's a great uh, inside information source for the pod, and I say inside just because he prolifically reads just about every piece of Gator content that's out there, which allows me to get the consensus, so thank you, Tyler, uh, essentially had asked this question, would you trade Florida's recruiting class for Florida State's? And I, I sort of unpacked that and looked at each player and position the balance and thought about it. And yeah, I think the answer for me would have been no. And uh, it seems to be the consensus would be no. You know, I think if you put class first class, our class probably has more balance uh, and, and more overall, I think, um, weight to it than what Florida State's does. And, and the reason I'm unpacking that is just to kind of illustrate the ranking system in and of itself. Don't concern yourself with the number next to the name with how we finished. Concern yourself with the top quality players that you get and with the balance. So to put a bow on this one, Florida State's four of their best six signees are DBs, which is nice, except you can only play a couple of DBs at a time. And so having those guys on the bench is not producing any current yield for your team. So if you had signed a couple of DBs and no linemen and a quarterback, for instance, you know that might be a different yield than four DBs. So either way, I think Taggart is a wait and see. There's a lot of thoughts on him. Is he a good recruiter? Is he overhyped? Whatever. We're going to find out next year. And then one last guy who seems to really have one signing day, Alan, no surprise to me, of course, uh, is Jimbo Fisher. Strong close for Texas A&M, bringing them into the top 20. And he's on a lot of people's early list to finish in a top five class next year. And this does not surprise me. I consistently say that Jimbo Fisher is chronically underrated. He's a he's an excellent recruiter. And uh, it seems like he's got A&M going in the right direction. A lot of people proclaimed him as national signing day you know, biggest mover or winner or whatever you want to call it because he sort of came out of nowhere very quickly. What do you make of what's going on with Jimbo Fisher at A&M? Feels like that's a burgeoning juggernaut. And the only thing that might curtail them is, you know, they're right there amidst a lot of difficult recruiting rivals. You know, Tom Herman, Herman finished with a great class at Texas. When Texas is rolling, they're a monster in recruiting. Um, they're fighting for a lot of the same guys that Bama and LSU are looking at. So I don't know. It's going to be tough, I think, for them to be, you know, just kind of like pulling in these classes where they get everybody they want, but they have all the resources and they have a guy like Jimbo Fisher. So I think they're going to be an interesting player in SEC West. I think it makes the SEC much stronger overall, and it, it definitely brings a lot more intrigue to those divisional races where Bama's just been clobbering everybody the last three years. Yeah, as a final note on sort of the state of the rivals, the state of the SEC has been greatly upped. Although this year, Allen, was I think the worst finish for SEC schools in recruiting that there's been in the past maybe decade. I think this will be the last year that happens. Uh, I think you're good. You're right. A lot of transition. A lot of transition, but you have upgraded the coaches, which we talked about this season quite a bit with how the SEC has been down. That is no longer. And now with Tom Herman at Texas and Dabo Sweeney at Clemson, 
the this area, the southeast southwest quadrant of the football country, is insane right now. And I think for several reasons, that's why a guy like Chip Kelly looked at UCLA and said, "Hey, if I can kind of be out there on my own, just battling with USC, you know, so be it. I don't <laughs> yeah. have to deal with fifteen other programs out here." But it's fascinating, especially for us getting to do a program like this. Uh, it's only going to intensify as we go. Now let's let's zoom in on the players, Alan. I know this is sort of your your favorite part is looking at the looking at the players, kind of picking some guys that may may pop or may not pop. Um, there's a lot of guys that people are excited about in this recruiting class as being potential breakout players, uh, key contributors, which is different from the past. You have a lot of guys to choose from. Give me some of your impact players, some of the guys you're just most excited about. I'll give you one on offense and one on defense. You know, pretty obvious, you know, if I'm not going to talk about Emory Jones, which we talked about him a lot last podcast, is Jacob Copeland. This is a guy that McIlwain and their their staff had targeted as their basically number one guy they were trying to get. And so if you follow recruiting at all, You've heard the name Jacob Copeland over and over again. Committed to Florida, decommitted, and then Mullen's biggest win on signing day. You know, overall, they really wanted this guy, and they, I don't know if they needed him, but it's a huge win. He's a, a top, top talent. You get some Percy Harvin, you know, comparisons. I don't know that about that. I haven't watched him. <laughs> I don't watch the tape of these guys. Wait till they show up. But I, I don't know if you want to be comparing anybody there on the field um but he's a guy i think that brings a lot of athleticism can do a lot of things apparently um big time talent as far as i'm aware and i think we needed some star power on offense we've got a lot of talented guys potentially but copeland could be a star and then on defense a lot of interesting guys but i'm gonna talk about amari bernie who's depending on where you see him listed athlete safety outside linebacker. I kind of expect to see him in this kind of outside linebacker, maybe nickel or safety, maybe doing a little bit of the Marcus May type action, Keanu Neal with the Falcons, where he's a physical guy, but helping in coverage. And, you know, we're thin at linebacker, especially at some of these spots. So I wouldn't be surprised if they try him out there, but I think he's a guy who um, could be a really versatile player for us on defense. And I'm int- intrigued to see where he ends up on that side of the ball. What about you? I'm going to take just one, and that's because uh, plenty of other authors have written articles that are more in-depth uh, than what I would comment on, have watched film, which I have not outside of Emory Jones. So I'm going to name the guy that maybe signifies a bigger narrative, and that is the defensive end Malik Langham from Alabama. And why am I chronicling this? Because this was a guy that the recruiting momentum really heated up as this as his senior season went on. So much so that Alabama absolutely wanted this guy. He's from the state of Alabama. They put all their chips on him at the end. They tried extremely hard to win this recruiting battle. And we got him. And I think that is a question that we had raised on the pod is can Dan Mullen win big recruiting battles against these big Titanic coaches? And while this is only one, that's a big win early on for Dan Mullen. And and you can make an argument too, Alan, like roster wise, defensive end pass rusher is something maybe we have, I think you could say safely, quite a bit of talent at at this point in time. So it wasn't Mm -hmm. like we're saying, hey, there's just immediate playing time for you coming in the door. 
Uh, and certainly there's there's an opportunity, but it wasn't that golden scenario. So we went head to head with Bama, and, and he came out on top for a, a key, if not one of the hotter names coming into signing day. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pick that as as the impact player that I'm most excited about because it might impact the program on a different level. To win a guy like that uh, at this situation, at those stakes, this early on could signify something big for year two. All right. It's time to give like these it. things. It's time to give these things a grade, and this is you on the crib sheet that says, "Ask me to give it a grade first, But I'm stealing it, and I'm going to ask you to give it a grade first too. <laughs> give me a give me a letter grade, and I'll follow you. And then tell me after that, in the bottom line, is this class a success, average, or a failure? I'm going to give this class an A minus. I was really pleased with the effort that this staff gave. You know a lot of things moving against them, a lot of adversity with the shortened period going up against, you know, some programs that are really killing it. I mean, everybody, Miami, so many guys out there fishing for the same recruits. And like you said, they came away with some big wins. And so the fact that this is a transition class that is maybe one of the better transition classes Florida has ever had uh, I don't know. I got to give it credit to these guys. And so definitely a success. I don't think that we can look at this and go, okay, problem solved. Everything moves forward for us. This is what we needed. You know, like we're, we're we've climbed all the way out of the rebel that we were in, but I think it's a check mark along the way. It's a, it's a signpost that says, okay, we're moving in the right de- direction we think right now. And so um, for that, I think Mullen's got to be applauded. What about you? I'm going to give it a B plus. I think that had we landed one or two of those guys, we thought we had a, a solid shot of landing on signing day. This would have been an A for me. Uh, so we're, we're right there, but that's a solid grade. I definitely think this class is a success. I had a lot of question marks when we hired Dan Mullen about recruiting. Uh, we, we openly talked about it, and and I we weren't sure. I, I wasn't saying he couldn't do it, but we were saying, look, here's what we know. You know, he did this at Mississippi State, and when he was here, he wasn't known as a recruiter, and supposedly he's changed a lot, and we kind of talked about those scenarios, and we've watched this journey here through the past couple of months. But this class is a success, and, and part of the reason it is a success is, is A, there's direction. We had a strategy. We had a tactical plan. We're targeting certain players for his scheme. We're targeting certain players for the defensive scheme, and we're not signing guys that don't fit that. So check the box right away with with building your – your army, if you will, building your militia. And then secondly, we went after the biggest guys, which at Florida, I think you and I agree totally here, you have to do. You have to do that. We didn't do it under McIlwain. We were sort of content to just kind of go after whatever. We have got to be in on these biggest guys. It generates buzz for the program. And of course, when you land them, it launches us forward. So I think it was successful. I give it a B plus. I think it was a very solid transition class. I think you could easily argue, as you did, Alan, it's an A minus. Is even an A? If you look historically, what other coaches have done during their transition years, including Urban Meyer, Dan Mullen's transition class is right on par with guys like Urban Meyer uh, and and others that are transitioning as well. So you could make a stronger case for this. You really, really could, uh, and that would be perfectly fine and valid. Uh, And so the question that sort of is remaining and and one other one that I guess I'll get ahead of here is we haven't talked about the transfers yet and we're going to. Don't worry if you're thinking, hey, wait a minute, this class is that much better if you include the transfers. Yes, that's true. And hold on to that thought for a second. But does this alter your perception of the Mullen hire at all? 
This is the exact same question we asked after early signing day, and we're going to ask it again. Does this Allen, this performance on national signing day and this totality of recruiting for 2018, does it alter your perception of the Mullen hire? You know, this is the question I wrote because I wanted to ask you this because you were a little more critical, less excited. Um, I'm going to say no, not really. I was hopeful that he would be able to do this. It's kind of in line with my projection or, you know, one of the paths is that he does well here. The other path is we kind of are just blah. And if we're on the path where he starts to build something really special, this is another, you know, breaking that path or plank or whatever you want to say. And so I, I don't know if it changes anything. It just affirms that maybe we're on one of the, we're on the path that I prefer us to be on. So I think the bigger question is, what about you? Does this alter anything for you? It does alter my perception of of the Mullen hire uh, because I I did not think, and that's why I mentioned this sort of head-to-head battle with Nick Saban, that Dan Mullen was capable of winning such battles. We like to joke he sort of looks like Cousin Eddie from one of my favorite Christmas <laughs> movies, right? National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Uh, he's not really like the most charismatic kind of guy. I'm not sure how he appeals to younger guys, but... Two things have changed my perception about Dan Mullen Allen from when we first had asked me this question way back when, when he was hired. One, he's not the same guy he was 10 years ago when he was on staff of Florida. But more importantly than that, two, he's gone toe-to-toe with the big guys in one. But 2A, or 2B, depending on how you like to use your outline format, he's hired (laughs) a bunch of young guys. He's hired a new strength coach, which is getting rave reviews after our old strength program has been well chronicled nationally for being a disaster. He has a really, I think, savvy recruiting plan. Get a bunch of guys in their late 20s, early to mid 30s on your staff that are good football coaches, but are probably better recruiters that relate to these players, that will smash social media, that will get involved in their lives and see what happens. I think he's really not afraid to try to get Florida into the top three in recruiting. And that, I think, is really, really important. And I did not think that was my perception of Dan Mullen or what he was going to do. I think I viewed him more as a guy that was going to seek to be maybe number five to number 15 in recruiting and then be a system coach. But it actually seems like he truly is trying to follow in the footsteps of his predecessor, of his teacher, of his mentor, Urban Meyer, and go after the biggest guns. Will he be as successful as Urban? No way. Not possible. But he could be close. And if he's close, you know, that could make for a very interesting future here at Florida on the recruiting side of things. I still have perception questions on how we run the offense. And that obviously will come plenty uh, next season. But... Good question. It has changed uh, positively would be the the Cliff Notes answer. All right, James, let's jump into some other news and notes of the last few months. We've hinted at this. We neglected to talk about this in the previous podcast, but two rather large transfers for UF, both at the wide receiver position, uh, Van Jefferson from Ole Miss and Trevon Grimes from Ohio State. Uh, really interesting guys. Jefferson is a guy that's, very intriguing. Put up some decent stats at Ole Miss, and then decided, you know what, I need to get out of this. I don't know, not quite dumpster fire, but kind of mess that Ole Miss was in with the NCAA. 
And Trevon Grimes is a five, former five-star player recruit um, out of the state of Florida and maybe just couldn't quite make it work at Ohio State. Uh, James, are you excited about either of these two guys? I mean, I'm very excited about both of them. And if you factor them into the recruiting rankings, you know that would give us seven, essentially, top 100 players uh you know right there borderline and, and that would that would put us on par uh with kirby smart's first transition class of georgia and kirby smart walked into a much better situation taking over from mark Richt than dan yes. mullen did so that that's where you can kind of piggyback on that excitement we just talked about my perception changing you can lay a lot of foundations for dan mullen's year two and you and i talk about this a lot year two is by far the most important recruiting year a coach has that's the one that's really going to tell you how well he can recruit. Uh, and Dan Mullen has built the foundation. He's put the cornerstone in. He's given himself momentum. He compares very favorably to the elite recruiters after a transition class. We'll see what he can do. But uh, Grimes and Jefferson, I think both of these guys could be key contributors to then they just add to a, a more loaded wide receiver class. Now, hopefully, hopefully uh, Jefferson is able to play. I think we'll find out in April or maybe even May, because he's leaving, obviously, Old Miss's program, and there's a cause reason for that. As to whether or not Grimes can play, I'm going to say I don't know. No one's talked about that. Seems unlikely, Alan, to me, that he would be able to play this upcoming season. Maybe you know better than I. Uh, but either yeah, way, it's very much great simple. depth in the wide receiver core position. And then go ahead, comment on, uh, comment on Grimes. Yeah, I think these guys are... You know, both kind of a mystery right now. Jefferson, they're hoping all those Ole Miss guys are hoping that they're going to get immediate eligibility. And Grimes has a shot. He's, you know, part of his reason for leaving was uh, being closer to home with kind of a illness in the family. You saw this with TJ McCoy moving, transferring from NC State. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I think he got immediate eligibility, although he didn't play because he was too far behind on the depth chart. But I think there's a possibility for both of these guys to be eligible. Now Jefferson has way more production, way more stats. I mean, I think Grimes has three had three catches last year or something like that. So that's a little bit worrisome for me with Grimes. Um, I don't know. Anytime I mean, there's some legitimate reasons for transferring. Obviously, Jefferson has some. Uh, Grimes, hopefully, he's not just a bust which he could be, he could be awesome. I don't know. I don't love the look of transferring out of like a, you know, kind of a cutthroat place like Ohio State. Now, maybe he really does want to be closer to home and he's got an illness in the family, and that's a definitely a legit reason. So I'm hoping that's the case. Although, for some reason, I'm not holding my breath that Grimes is going to be transcendent. And, you know, if I have to eat those words, I'll do so happily. Um, let's talk about some players staying. Um, the, the most notable two here, Martez Ivy and CC Jefferson, our our last two five stars that we reeled in, decided to come back for a senior year. James, how big a deal is this that these guys are staying? And why don't you talk about each one independently? Yeah, this is a a huge deal. And beyond just the production on the field, this has to do with what goes on in the locker room. And a lot was talked about last year with the lack of leadership that this team had, uh, not only from the head coach, but also from the players. And I think now with an organized, structured system from Dan Mullen that piggybacks off of what Urban Meyer wants to do. Of course, Urban Meyer famously broke, quote unquote, our program. But when it's working correctly, player leadership is very important. So to have a senior on either side of the ball that has talent, 
Uh, both of these guys will play or at least get a look in the NFL. Um, that's important to your football team. Again, beyond the production, that is really important to your football team. That will make everyone practice better, work harder, play harder. Uh, it's it's excellent. I don't think you or I thought both of these guys would be back. So it's a surprise to no. me that both of them are back. And I, I think it's I think it's significant news heading into this offseason. Uh, this will absolutely help our team beyond just what you see on the field production-wise. Yeah, I think that's really huge, especially as there's, you know, this transition going on on the defensive side of the ball. We're not sure where anybody's playing. CC seems like he'll be productive almost anywhere you line him up. And so having a stalwart at one spot, even if it takes him a while to figure it out, I think is really huge. And then the offensive line, while we have a decent amount of depth, I think there's a lot of guys you could put in there. Having Ivy either at guard or tackle, wherever they end up putting him, um, I think it's huge. It makes me feel so much better about our prospects along the O-line, which is, you know, not like Martez R.E.V. has ever really been like all American kind of candidate yet, but both these guys are looking to improve their NFL stock. That's the bottom line. Um, they got the information that they weren't going to go as high as they wanted and they're coming back. You know, if they were going to be top tier prospects, they would have been gone. I wouldn't have blamed them. You know, the, the easier thing to do definitely is to leave after during a coaching transition, but I, this is huge news for the Gators, um, like you said, on and off the field. And hopefully these guys provide you know, stability in their units, but also in the locker room. Okay, so another thing that happened while we were gone, um, resolution of most of the, I guess, the credit card nine or whatever you want to call them. Uh, some of the guys have moved on. Some of the, the guys who weren't expected. We end up reinstating quite a few of the players, including Jordan Scarlett, um, the two linebackers um, who were suspended, uh, lost Kadeem Telfort and a few other guys. Let's start with Jordan Scarlett. He enters into a pretty talented running back room. What does this mean for the Gators? Do you think it ups our kind of win quotient, or we have enough talent back there, maybe it doesn't matter? This is the, the modern football debate, isn't it, Alan? Do you want five great running backs, or do you want – one with a supplement back. I mean, how do you want to distribute your carries? It's certainly it works for Georgia to have two guys plus a third guy toting the rock for them this past yeah. season. Uh, it's a football debate that's that remains unanswered. I, I think I like to ar argue on the side of competition, assuming you can foster it correctly, and these guys actually get a merited fair shake. So the guys that are performing the best according to whatever the coach designs as the attribute get the most playing time, so it's a true meritocracy, it will make these guys better. But that is a difficult environment to create correctly. So I'm caveating that, but I'm saying having a guy like Jordan Scarlett, if he's totally bought in and is working hard, is only going to help the competition level uh, that all of these running backs put out there on a week-by-week -week basis, which therefore should raise their production. But these are college guys, Alan, and anyone who's played sports knows how frustrating it is not to get the playing time you think you deserve. Flip side of that is you can start to get factions, the growth in the team that support one guy over the other. They get frustrated about their lack of carries or their prominence or whatever the case is. And that can go in the other direction. So I'm giving both sides of the coin. 
in my opinion, of course, it's great to have a guy with Scarlett's talent in that backfield. Uh, it will only up the competition and may the best guy win. May the best guy win and may the best guy get 10 to 15 carries a game. I would hate to see a scenario where each guy's only getting four or five carries. I don't think that works in any context, but I, I it's hard to create a narrative here where that doesn't work well if the coaches are doing their job. Yeah, I think it's good for the team overall. I mean, I was a little, I don't know, skeptical about whether Jordan Scarlett was going to come back. And obviously he felt like he needed another year, but I think there's enough space between these guys. You know, they're not bunched up class-wise, so they can kind of see the future. And, you know, as you've seen with the running back position, you can have a rash of injuries here. So <clears throat> having the depth that we do, I think, is phenomenal. I think the guy that might get squeezed out here is Michael P. Ryan, who's been solid but not spectacular. I think you'll see Scarlett. I think you'll see Malik Davis if he gets back healthy. It's going to be hard to keep him off the field. And probably one of the freshmen, too, maybe Damian Pierce. I think could win some time. So, um, but it's nice that if any of these guys go down, you got a couple other guys to replace them. So I think that's huge. And then the two linebackers who will be back with us, they're freshmen, uh, you know, they didn't see the field, but with our, you know, kind of declining numbers at linebacker over the year, we could have really used these guys last year. And maybe this will push some of the guys like Rashad Jackson and, you know, some of the guys who, Probably shouldn't have been on the field. Hopefully we won't be reduced to playing walk-ons at linebacker now that these guys are returning to the team. Who knows if they're any good or not, but at least a few more bodies there um, to compete. Let's talk about some of the guys who went pro. Let me start with maybe the guy, the most enigmatic gator of recent memory, Antonio Callaway. Good decision or a bad decision by him? He's made a lot of bad decisions seemingly in his career as a Gator, how much promise he had, where he wound up, where he is now. It's a, it's a bad decision. Uh, if I were him, I would have even gone the Juco transfer route. I mean, it, he needed to prove that he could live within a system and do the right thing. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know what his draft stock is. I haven't looked at it, but it's hard very hard to be a receiver in the NFL. And it's that much harder when you have the past he has uh, and you're not coming off playing any football to sort of clear that up. So I think it's a poor decision. I think he had a lot more to gain from playing another year of football. Uh, obviously, he thought otherwise, but to me, that just sends another signal, if I'm an NFL GM, that this guy is just not a guy that I think is is ready for the demands of the NFL. Yeah, this is a tough one. I don't know that he was going to be reinstated at UF. I think he has too many marks on his ledger to be let back in. And so, yeah, he could have transferred, could have gone somewhere else, could have gone Juco. I don't know how the NFL is going to look at him. I don't think he's going to be a guy who's going to blow it up at the combine. I think he's more of a production on the field kind of guy. He'll get a look, and he'll have his chance to to prove himself in a training camp somewhere. But he's definitely – has a tough road to hoe here. I, I don't know what I would have done if I were him. It's kind of, he's put, he's put himself in a pretty tough situation, but I guess best of luck to the guy. I mean, he had a lot of great moments as a Gator and a lot of really tough moments as a Gator as well. Let's jump over to coaching changes. Now the coaching staff is finally complete. Probably the main headline is that 
Juan Sider has left the program, basically got moved out as the running backs coach when uh, Coach Mullen brought in Coach Knox from Mississippi State, longtime running back coach, and they had Juwan Sire slot as a tight end coach, which he's never coached before, but I think they were hoping to hold on to him for his recruiting prowess. He's the guy that was the ace recruiter under Mullen, the one holdover on this Mullen, excuse me, McElwain brought him in as the ace recruiter. He's the one holdover from that staff under Mullen. James, how do you feel about that? Any misgivings about him moving on? Well, yes and no. We had we had chronicled how you know what a great job he had been doing, and I think Mullen tried to hang on to him as best he could. Uh, but I also understand building your own staff, and and I I understand asking a guy to say, look, you know, be flexible. We talked about on the show Snyder coaching tight ends? Question mark. Um, you know, coaching other position groups. We've talked about this before. I know I had a text thread going about it with some buddies. I don't like that. I haven't liked that before. I think coaching does matter. I think it matters quite a bit, in fact. I don't think you can just throw a guy out there who's never coached tight ends and have him coach tight ends well. So he wasn't happy with that. Took a took a job at a different program uh, that will allow him to get back with running backs, which makes perfect sense. I think maybe the bigger line in this story is that we replaced uh, Jawan with a coach that has tremendous experience, uh, which I think benefits the program. Uh, Jawan's a young, solid recruiting type guy, and we filled it with a with again with a guy I think that's really solid. So it'd be one thing if Jawan was out and in comes the next guy, and now we're sort of like, okay, great, we don't have we don't have uh, we have Chris Leak there, right? That's the first one that comes to mind. We hired Chris Leak, and he's going to wind up coaching the receivers. <laughs> uh, that would have been panic button, you know, have been real bad. But I think in in, in reality what happened was we shifted out a really really good recruiter uh we now have a staff of what seems to be very good recruiters and brought in an actually really seasoned coach with regards to experience not an old guy a young guy but a guy that has more coaching experience than joan does so i don't i don't see it as a negative but recruiting wise sad to see him go he did a great job and i think we tried to hang on to him as long as we could yeah that's one of those things you know, you're hoping for the best in those situations. I always felt like if they brought him in, if they brought in Coach Knox and moved, you know, Juwan Sider, he's probably going to leave. And that's unfortunate because I think um, he's shown that he's more than capable of holding down his spot, especially in South Florida. So we'll have to see if that affects Florida in the long, long run. I, we'll never know. But if this class isn't recruiting or this team isn't recruiting at the level they want, you may look back at some of those decisions, some of those coaching choices but as of right now things appear to be looking up james any other news and notes before we move on to maybe taking a look back at the end of the net the college football season not from the recruiting side i think hopefully from this you you guys have gotten our thoughts on it like like really most everyone else i think we think it's solid and we try to put some numbers to those to those factors i think both alan and i from what it sounds like, Alan, uh, we agree that this is the best class we've had since the Muschamp era, uh, which isn't saying a lot for McElwain, of course, but that, that's that's really not not very debatable. There's a lot of exciting components to this class, and I think that it was a very good transition class statistically uh, to kind of put that all into context. So any way you slice it, no matter where you fall on the debate, if you feel like, hey, I wish we had some more of these other guys, or I wish we had more depth here and there, 
Uh, it's a very solid transition class. Now, the real question, the real work has to be done in year two. It's been too many years since we've been a top five program. That's going to be the drum that I'll be beating on for 2019 is we have got to get ourselves up in that range. And that will really signal to me that essentially Florida is back as a top level program. So the foundation is set. The cornerstone is set. And I think that's sort of like my end cap for the recruiting piece of this program. And Alan, before we talk about the national championship game for just a moment, because two really interesting things happen there that have to do with what you've heard us talk about on the podcast. Any other recruiting related thoughts from you? No, it, it, not a really. I think this split national signing day, um, it's going to take us a couple of years to really realize how this affects college football. I'm interested to see whether it's going to be a net positive or a net negative. Seemingly most people were happy with it. We'll have to see what this does later down the road. Um, I'm hopeful that at a place like Florida, we can lock in a top class early and then cherry pick some of the best guys available by the end. But we could see ourselves getting squeezed on the back end with guys that we hope to kind of come to next and they're already gone. So I think that's, kind of what everybody's holding out and wait and see, but I'm at least optimistic. This is going to be a good change for college football. Okay, James, you criticized Alabama all season for their floor strategy on offense. Basically we're so dominant athletically that we're going to pound you into submission and we're going to win all over and just running our army of running backs into your face. And that was working up until it wasn't. And then they pivoted. And I have to say, I was shocked reading about the next day because I was on an airplane when it happened. But that they actually made a quarterback change. You never see this happen. You never see them, a coaching staff, go to a true freshman in the second half of a national championship game. James, were you surprised they did that? No. No, I wasn't. And in fact, I had a conversation with a listener of this very podcast the day before the game. And he was he was telling me that he felt like Nick Saban's moments passed. Maybe he's not capable of making these sort of big decisions. <laughs> and, you know, less than 24 hours later, he makes one of the biggest decisions in uh, in college football history to go to this true freshman. But the thing about Nick Saban that bothers me is Nick Saban knows these things, which is why I rail on him all the time. Nick Saban darn well knows he's taking a floor strategy, and it's almost a slap in the face to football in and of itself because he knows he could be going for glory, go for the ceiling, become the best team you possibly could be. He doesn't do that. He's just trying to beat who else is there. And while I understand this, it's a viable strategic theory to try to win a game, to try to win a game meaning college football, not one game, but the game of college football as a whole. Uh, it, it was biting him hard. I mean, Georgia was crushing him at halftime. And that's not a surprise to me because Jalen Hurts is not a quarterback. Uh, and then what Nick Saban does is what he does. Not only does he bring in a freshman, Allen, but lo and behold, this guy had been getting better as the year went on. Imagine that. I mean, how many Gator fans have I had to talk to about how true freshmen can't play and they don't know what they're doing and you have to give these guys a break and why are you so hard on Franks and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And why did you like Will Greer so much? The bottom line is if you have a player that's smart and he knows what he's doing and he gets a year of coaching, even if he's not playing all the time, by the end of the year, he should be a functioning quarterback. 
It just also so happens that the guy that was behind Hertz is the guy that Trent Dilford said is the best quarterback recruit he had ever seen. The guy's fantastic, which is why I was saying I hate the floor strategy. They could have been playing him. Maybe they lost one extra game uh, or well, the same game, sorry, given their schedule, and they wouldn't have lost. But, hey, you know what? It worked out. It was an incredibly ballsy decision, not, I think, from a logical standpoint. I think logical and probability-wise, it was the only decision you could make, which is kind of how Nick Saban said it, which illustrates how well he really understands game theory and this concept of sort of leveling and understanding how you win a game. Uh, but to the average viewer, it seemed crazy, right? Because football mantras, like you certainly don't take a guy out who's only lost one or two games as a starter, uh, has taken you everywhere you need to go. But Nick correctly understood that that was no way to win this particular game. It will be a very interesting offseason. Hertz is staying. You would assume automatically that Hertz would not be the guy for that job. But from what I understand is he's committing himself to trying to become a better passer. Uh, and it will be interesting to see what Nick Saban does. It's clear he really likes that floor strategy. But I think, Alan, you didn't get to watch the game. After the game, uh, Nick Saban was interviewed, and he said it was the happiest he's ever been in his whole life. And I believe it, because I think he had thought it really was over. And it probably should have been over. Uh, but you have to give him a lot of credit for making that change at halftime. And as a last sort of cherry on this Nick Saban ice cream with whipped cream and, and sprinkles and all your other favorite toppings, he said during the week that he had prepared the quarterbacks for this very situation, that they might need to get in a situation where they have to pass. And this just goes to show you how well he understands game planning. Uh, and the guy's a savant. Look, I, I can't stand Alabama and I can't stand Nick Saban, but the, the strategist in me loved what I saw at halftime of that game. Uh, you know, We watched coaches here at Florida not take out quarterbacks who could hit the broadside of a daggone barn and couldn't even move the team. Uh, when Nick Saban in the middle of a championship game says, I'm going to make this change. I'm going to win the game. And let's not forget, this is the same guy that kicked an onside kick in the second half of a national championship game just a few years back. So he is willing to do what it takes to win football games. I can only hope that we see similar coaching from Dan Mullen in the big moments. And I can also only hope, although not really, Alan, that Alabama gets rid of the floor strategy. And I say not really because there's a whole nother level Bama could get to if they were willing to accept some more variance in their performance. So maybe we should rely on them to be in the floor strategy. Maybe maybe what Kirby Smart has done to Alabama is the worst thing for the rest of the teams in college football. It will remain to be seen. But either way, a fascinating tidbit. Hopefully you guys that have been long-term listeners of the show were more tuned in to what was going on with Bama than some others, uh, especially given you know my proclivity to kind of rant about that. So it felt good to me to see it, Alan. It feels good to talk about it now. It was a really fascinating championship game. And also it really sucks, I think, for us to know that Bama and Georgia don't look like they're going anywhere anytime soon. And we probably, in most years, would have to beat both of them to go to a national title game, which is why I think the odds of us winning an SEC title under Dan Mullen are very small, even if he does a very good job. You can make an argument. It's never been harder to win the SEC than it is right now. Well, if you're a Georgia fan, though, you've got to be still replaying that game in your mind over and over and over again. The fact that you let Bama come back into that game. And if you're from Atlanta and you went to Georgia, and so you're a Falcons fan and a Bulldogs fan, I've seen this meme all over the internet, but you're 
you're probably waking up every morning crying. Um, so I can't say that I was sad to see the Bulldogs go down like that. Not that I really cared for Alabama ever to win another game, but um, I'm kind of glad that Georgia didn't get one up on us there. You know, kind of another notch in their belt in the championship resume. So um, I don't know. Maybe maybe they'll take a step. We've unleashed the beast, as you said, but hopefully they'll revert back to playing. You know ball dominant offense and not reaching for the stars and maybe we'll come in and surprise them a little bit with some razzle dazzle and, and pull one out of our hat there all right last but not least for our next episode which will not be six or seven weeks away i know i can hear you guys clapping right now wherever you're listening to this podcast uh, we're gonna be doing a mailbag episode since really not a tremendous amount goes on between now and the orange and blue game uh, there's news and notes and other things going on. We figured this is the best time to do a mailbag episode. We will answer any question that you want to have Alan and I talk about, with the only stipulation being that we want to reward our most loyal patron fans by allowing only them to ask questions. Now, if that seems exclusionary, it is. <laughs> I'm sorry to all of our, fo- our faithful followers on Facebook and Twitter. Normally, we leave this open up to everyone. But these Patreon supporters have been most generous, most kind to sort of be with us during the pilot program and support us still to this day. Uh, and we want to give them a little chance to ask their questions, and we will answer whatever it is you want to ask about. This is the off season. Feel free to get creative, uh, but post your questions on Patreon, and then we will create an episode exclusively from them. And you can look for that to, to drop in a couple of weeks slash the first week or so of March. And with that, that brings this episode to a close. It was great fun for Alan and I to get back together after six or seven weeks away from the booth. We certainly hope that you enjoyed today's episode. If you have any comments or feedback, other things we didn't address you wanted to hear us address, certainly please contact us. As always, drop us a like on Facebook. You can support us on Patreon. You can hit us up on Twitter. Pick any social media feed you like. We'll be there. We'll answer your questions, your concerns. And we look forward to enjoying uh, what's left of this, what seems to be forever long football offseason. But we'll get through it together. Hang in there. And we will see you again soon. It's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. 
Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.